0: Hi, I'm Jonah Goldberg, Uh, Sarah Isger, Steve Hayes, David French. They're not here, but we got we got Declan Garvey and Kevin Williamson. And this is the Dispatch podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about the debt ceiling hullabaloo, uh, the classified documents hullabaloo and um, whether or not uh, the GOP is just simply a culture war party these days with little else to to talk about and we'll see what else may be worth your time so as sarah might say if she were a wwe announcer let's dive right in Okay, so uh thank you guys for joining me this morning. Um it's been a while since I've had actually had to professionally moderate um something and today won't be the day where I start. Kevin, um our 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 friend and uh former National Review colleague, uh Ramesh Panuru, uh, had a good column in his new Washington Post column where he uh um he makes the case that the only really The only reason to be really scared about how the debt ceiling thing is playing out is that nobody seems to be really scared. Um, Where do you come down on all that? That's a very Rameshian, uh, Ponaruvian way of uh, looking at things. Isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, these sorts of um, standoffs are always a little bit of a loaded gun. You know, um, I think that we exaggerate the likelihood or danger of an actual default uh, because – the money that we have to spend on debt service is well under what we collect in tax revenue, so there is money to pay for that stuff. Um, the chaos comes from the likelihood or possibility of having to shut down lots and lots of other stuff and uh, or of eventually pushing finances to the point where they have to stop writing checks that people really care about, like social security and that sort of thing, although that seems pretty unlikely. I'm of two minds about these these debt ceiling fights i mean it's a dumb way to i think um, organized finances, but at some point um, new debt does have to be authorized by somebody and that's Congress's job. So there's, I don't think there's a really good way around having something like this. I don't think you really want it, you know, on permanent autopilot given the, you know, character of the people and institutions uh, we're we're talking about here. Using the debt ceiling fight as a way to um, at least bring up the issue of fiscal reform and, you know, fiscal probity and eventually Getting to a more sustainable, if not balanced budget is, I think, not the worst, you know, kind of political opportunism. I think it's, um, it's relevant to the question at hand. It's a very fair observation that these Republicans don't really have much of a moral like to stand on in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, fiscal responsibility. But, you know, if that were really our standard, <laughs> We wouldn't have had any major policy innovations since Abraham Lincoln, who was probably the last person in office uh, in the United States who really had some some moral authority. Maybe Dwight Eisenhower or something like that. So um, I don't worry about this this fight too much. It's not how I would like to see our policy conducted. I prefer that things happen in a much more predictable, orderly um, kind of way. But that's not how democracies uh, work, which is why I'm you know a two cheers at best for democracy kind of guy. That being said, I don't expect to see any real reform come out of this process. It's going to be a while before um, before that happens.
0: Yeah, so it's a I probably should have started with you to do the table setting here. But um, do we even know exactly what the Republicans are demanding? No. Because I take Kevin's points. They're all well taken. But like if you're going to extract concessions to get spending
2: in line, you should have an idea of what those concessions are, right? A list <laughs> would be nice. We yeah. we don't know what they are, and Republicans don't know what they are. I mean i I'm going to pull from some quotes from this uh, NBC News article from Sahil Kapoor that went up this morning. I haven't really formulated an exact list. That's Marjorie Taylor Green when asked uh, about what should be cut. We've got Bob Good declined to elaborate on what specifically he would like to be cut. Anna Paulina Luna, where there's a will, there's a way, saying that she would not add any tax increases or Social Security or Medicare cuts. These are not serious people presenting not serious plans to actually make a dent in any of these things. We've published something from Brian Riedel last week at the Manhattan Institute uh, that gets into this really well that if you're not willing to touch defense spending Tax revenues, Medicare, or Social Security—you basically need to <laughs> reduce all other domestic federal spending by like ninety percent, almost, um, to, to balance the budget. And Kevin's like, "Go on." Wow. Well, actually, <laughs> what, I, what I was thinking is <laughs> I don't think that math is quite right. I
1: think that if you eliminated all non-defense discretionary spending, you still wouldn't get rid of the deficit entirely. we would just have a little. Bit it, of it, that would be over, like yeah. over
2: a decade, something like that. It, it, that's just not a, you know, not a politically feasible plan. Uh it's even if it might be marginally a mathematically feasible plan. And so I mean a lot of this is theatrics. Uh but that said, historically, a lot of actual fiscal reforms have come tethered to this debt ceiling. Granted those were times when Congress was slightly more functional than it than it is now. The biggest question remaining is whether we have a two day freakout in June where we do it does seem like we're headed over the cliff and then Kevin McCarthy Loses his speakership, somebody else comes in and they just pass a clean debt ceiling rise, or we avoid that two days before that happens. They're going to raise it eventually. It's just a matter of whether there's a little bit more theatrics involved for them. But it does seem like Joe Manchin met with Kevin McCarthy earlier this week after meeting with the White House. Talks are happening. Patrick McHenry, who's a top Repu- House Republican and has allies on all parts of the conference, is urging his colleagues to be a little bit more responsible about this in their rhetoric than they have been. We've got four months, five months to figure it out, and we shall see what, what comes out of it.
1: You always know, tell where people's hearts are, you know. Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, "I haven't really formulated a specific list." You know, in ten years, when they're asking Republicans like who they want to send to the re-education camps down in Orlando or wherever they build them, the answer is not going to be, "I haven't (laughs) formulated a specific list." They've been they've been working on that list for for years, and they're going to be ready to go with that one. One thing, I mean, to speak to that point though, and more seriously, you know, we do have a Democrat-controlled Senate and a Democrat in the White House. It would be interesting, if only as a if only as a kind of parliamentary exercise for Republicans to pretend to be serious about this and say, well, what kind of deal could we negotiate in the current circumstances? Uh, Because whatever deal ultimately gets negotiated, the only way to get a stable political settlement, that's really going to work on the, on the budget over a 20 or 25 year period, which is what's needed is it's going to have to be one that has a really, a lot of broad political buy-in. It's going to have to naturally be the, the one thing that nobody wants, which is a bipartisan compromise. Um, you know, bipartisan compromises are currently seen on both sides of the political aisle as, you know, anathema, and it's something that shows that you're not morally and politically serious about, um, you know, serving your your base and all that. That really is the only way this problem gets solved, which is why it's probably only going to get solved once the other options have really been taken off the table by financial markets or by other, other outside forces.
0: Yeah, so it's funny when you put it that way, right? Because basically the only plausible version of success is some sort of bipartisan compromise. I agree with you there. And so basically both parties have come to believe that success is failure, right? right? Because they think a bipartisan compromise is failure. And that's a very kind of real world Orwellian (laughs) place to be. Um, I I, I do think though, like, and I tried to make this point during the McCarthy speakership battle And most people looked at me like I had six heads. And I get that the politics don't actually work this way, in part because people think they're not supposed to work this way. But um, Democrats want to portray themselves as the grown up party, the serious party, whatever, right? And the problem I have with that analogy is that in the real world, when a bunch of kids are behaving like jackasses, grown ups don't say, let them have their fun right or they'll work it out i mean yeah sometimes you, you let two brothers fight cuz they're going to have to get out of their system kind of thing but if you've got a whole high school senior class loaded guns. tearing apart the swimming pool <laughs> yeah shooting guns in the air whatever teachers and administrators don't don't say let's be grown-ups let let them just work this out on their own right and um when biden says we won't negotiate at all we shouldn't have to negotiate this is their problem Is there a vote? I get the political calculations of it, but it seems to me that, like, if you actually consider yourself to be the grown-up, you might sort of do what Kevin is proposing preemptively and say, hey, look, this is the only thing that we're willing to do. Um, You meet us here, be grown-ups, knowing that they'll refuse it. Right. So, like you get a, and, and the same thing could have happened in the speakership fight. Leonard Jeffrey, not Leonard Jeffries, uh, Hakeem. Hakeem Jeffries. Leonard Jeffries, by the way, is Hakeem Jeffries' uncle. Fun fact. Small world. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, I'll, my only point is like, you know, Hakeem Jeffries could have just simply come up with a very reasonable grown up sort of proposal about how to like bail McCarthy out at the fifth vote or something, where worst case scenario is McCarthy accepted the deal. Um, best case scenario is that he rejected it, but both of those scenarios are better than what we've got because it would have been the grown-up thing to do. And so my only problem with the the sort of Democrats need to the the Democrats messaging on all of this is they want to message that they're grown-ups. They don't actually want to be grown-ups, which is a different thing. Yeah. You know, I actually
1: kind of don't get the politics of this in some ways, and maybe you guys could help me out to understand it better. That, I mean, it seems to me that putting a, uh, an offer out there, as you mentioned, would give the Republicans something to fight over. And um, mm-hmm. if what the Democrats really want is to heighten the chaos and disorder and dysfunction within the Republican Party, then um, giving them something to actually have a, have a fight about would be probably preferable to um, just letting them sit there and pretend that they, they care about this and that they're eventually going to develop a list. Remember how in the Trump years they're always two weeks away from a health care uh, proposal? That's what this spending list is going to be, right? It's just down the road, we're going to have yeah. a list of stuff that we really want to cut. If, as you say, that you know, McCarthy in some world could actually sit down and work out a compromise like that, that would be the end of his speakership, of course. And uh, I think that Republicans would uh, would throw a fit about that. So if we imagine a world in which McCarthy throws himself on the grenade in the name of fiscal probity, which makes me laugh just even thinking about it, that's still kind of a, a political win for, for the Democrats, right? Because then you're going to have another Republican leadership fight. And more chaos, and you're probably going to end up with someone even more uh, grotesque and disreputable than Kevin McCarthy in the job.
2: I, I take your point, Kevin, about wanting to give something uh, to Republicans to, to fight over. I think the White House is anticipating, and probably accurately, that the, the bigger fight over whether we should default or not is enough for Republicans, with the majority being as small as it is, and with there being enough unserious people in the conference to to have that fight. Mm. They make the point that raising the debt limit is not, and it's correct, that it's not authorizing new spending. It is allowing us to pay for things that has already been authorized. And, you know, as we've talked about on this podcast and on plenty of other uh, Dispatch products, is a lot of that new spending is not entirely Democrats' fault. A lot of it is, but a lot of it is deficits that were increased from tax reform and, and all these other things. So... I get what they're coming from there. That said, it just doesn't, as to Jonah's point, it doesn't necessarily come off to me as as super responsible to just say we're not budging whatsoever. They're banking on there being enough Republicans to threaten to send us into default, and then they win by uh, you know acclamation if if we default on this and markets go crazy for a couple of days, then that is a huge political cell phone for Republicans. Well, if
1: we actually defaulted, uh, markets would go crazy for a lot more than a couple of days. But um, I don't think that, I don't know that Republicans actually have the power to make that happen unless they stop you know, collecting taxes. Uh, I mean, the Treasury Department can collect taxes and uh, the government can send the money out the door toward whatever it needs to go out toward. I mean, they can make decisions about what gets prioritized. So that just seems to me like such a remote possibility I mean, I hate to all bad news is a possibility, I think, in you know, in in my view. But um, I don't want to be the the buttercup optimist here, but it just seems like that's something that would be it's something somebody would have to expend some effort to make happen. It's not something even being dumb and irresponsible, you're going to just um stumble into.
0: Right. Although once you once an administration gets into the position where the Treasury Department is explaining that they have to pay bondholders before they pay social security beneficiaries,
2: mm-hmm. Chinese bondholders. Yes. Yeah.
1: Just an aside here, by the way. One of the reasons I'm I'm looking forward to another Republican leadership fight is just the fact that my political coordinates are so paleolithically Cold War that every time we talk about what's mm-hmm. McCarthy going to do, I
0: <laughs> I just have a little bit of a
1: flashback to a period that was 30 years before I was born, and I'm I don't know how many people named McCarthy we've had in Congress since Joe McCarthy. It's been a few. Uh, but I can't talk to yeah. Andy McCarthy without thinking about Joe McCarthy just a little bit, much less Kevin McCarthy uh, being actually in the I, I, have,
0: I have a very similar problem with all that. Just um, as, as a right. quick note. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sarah's not here to make the trains run on time. We can do whatever
2: we want. (laughs) As a quick aside before we jump on, you know, none of of this is confirmed, but I've heard rumblings throughout kind of the the speakership fight that some of the would-be challengers to McCarthy didn't put their name or didn't make it more of a push to, you know, cut them off at the knees and promote themselves into, into this role, the Scalises, some of these other candidates that because they know that this fight is coming and that they want to have kind of a sacrificial lamb take the heat on debt ceiling negotiations and somebody else can come pick up the pieces afterward. Do you think that there's any validity to that? Do you think that McCarthy's speakership is over uh, come end of June?
0: Well, I, 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 there's a real danger in our line of work of making predictions because then you bend all your analysis so that your predictions become true. And also you can be held accountable and you, (laughs) you hate that too. So, um, uh, but I've been on record saying that I think McCarthy got, I, I predicted that McCarthy would have a tough haul, but he would eventually become speaker And then he would become the Liz Truss of American politics and lose his speakership pretty quickly. I think, uh, you know, we don't have a cabbage head cam to see, you know, exactly where McCarthy's uh, tenure is, but I I think that's a safe bet. Although I, I also think like the criminology opportunities are pretty great these days. There was this big story I had to talk about on CNN the other day about how Elise Stefanik, knew or may have known or whatever was a huge booster of George Santos and that she's responsible and all that. And I thought it was a lot of silliness to the whole story, but the big takeaway I had was, huh, I wonder if Kevin McCarthy's people are trying to take her down a peg so she doesn't make a move on me prematurely. Um and I think we're just going to see a lot of stories that you're like, why are we hearing these people on background saying these terrible things about Steve Scalise and Elise Stefanik and <laughs> whoever, and it's, it's, it's because Kevin McCarthy's people are trying to keep, you know, uh, you know, Abe Vigoda and whoever else from Godfather from, from <laughs> setting up a meet. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we were talking briefly there about seriousness and responsibility and being a grown up. We don't have to dwell on it, but, um, those are words that do not come to mind in the current state of handling of classified documents uh, today. Um, uh, Declan, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Um, right now it's 9.45 Eastern time. Have Has Jimmy Carter come out and said that he in fact has... Uh, Some classified documents that he needs to uh, atone for. I'm really glad.
2: Or anybody else. I'm really glad that you got down to the minute there because odds are this podcast will be outdated on, on the classified document front by the time it's published uh, in a couple hours. Which is why we're not going to dwell on it too much. Yes. But yeah. um, so just to, to, to catch listeners up, Mike Pence, former vice president, was added to the list earlier this week of former high-ranking officials who have mishandled classified documents in, in some way. His lawyers citing press reports about Biden's classified documents conducted their own search. He retained outside counsel to search his own property in Indiana, and they found a handful of of documents with classified markings that the FBI then came and and retrieved late last week. And so it's it's just kind of uh relitigated the whole debate. And and I think now that it's almost, you know, all factions of all parties have had their own cheerleaders caught up in this. People of, of all political stripes are starting to have the, you know, maybe we are overclassifying too many, uh, too many documents, things if he, even Mike Pence uh, is falling afoul. This, and, I, and I do think that there's at least something to that, that Mike Pence probably did not do this intentionally, knowing uh, what we know about him and, and that. Wait, what do we know about him that would make us think that? <laughs> But he's such an honorable <laughs>
1: upstanding guy he's a he's a weeblo scout grown up i don't know uh, uh,
2: you and I have very different views of Mike Pence, but go ahead please <laughs> um, I, I I think that he can you know make some some uh difficult personal calculations, but I think he wouldn't knowingly violate uh federal statutes uh maybe maybe i I have a wrong read of the guy, but we're in a place where basically uh every you know, leader of of uh, every faction of the the different parties have their own scandals here, and and um, we're waiting to see if Merrick Garland will appoint a third special counsel to uh, to you know they'll be able to form a basketball team soon.
1: Jonah, to speak to your original question, Jimmy Carter said that he had classified documents in his heart, and he felt uh, very, uh, yeah. <laughs> guilty for it and needed to be forgiven.
0: I mean, I I I, I, I am going to give Kevin an opportunity here to um uh, vent his uh. His, his bile at, at Mike Pence. But... Um, oh, I've done that already. <laughs> um, but I was saying this the other night on the Dispatch Live podcast. This does feel a little... Like Kevin's old enough to remember. It feels like the Zoe Baird period in the Clinton administration where Bill Clinton kept trying to appoint an attorney general and one after another hadn't paid his na- or nanny's social security taxes or their gardeners, social security taxes or whatever. It does feel like we're just going to, we're in one of those threads. where like, we're going to be surprised that no one else has come out um, to admit that they have classified documents. I do feel like this has destroyed any chance of a serious prosecution against Donald Trump on this stuff. We're, you know, I, I don't say rightly or wrongly. I say wrongly, but uh, that's not the world we live in. And, um, and so, like Kevin, you have the you have a you have a very strange mix of I should not say strange. You have an unusual, oh, mix, strange, an atypical mix of small D democratic tendencies on some things and uh, small A anti democratic tendencies <laughs> on other things. <laughs> oh, it's getting um, capitalized so, now. It's, uh, <laughs> where, where where do you come down on this argument about? Overclassification and secrecy. Uh, I think we we classify
1: way too much stuff uh, for um, for for dumb reasons, and it's it's one of those deals where you never get in trouble for being too cautious about something. Uh, you know, so if you, it's it's like the FDA. You know, you get you get in trouble for approving something, not for not approving something. So you you get in trouble for letting stuff out, not for uh, for overclassifying things. That being said, um, I'm a I'm a big proponent of the idea that. Um, we should be really punctilious about enforcing the law when it comes to people who have political power, to people who are in elected office and who are adjacent to elected office. I think that if there's charges to be made in these cases, and there are charges to be made in these cases, I mean, the the, the statutory crime is removing a classified document to a non secure location, right? I mean, and they're all guilty. The facts of yeah. the case, <laughs> the facts of the case would seem to suggest that's at least a chargeable crime, and they should all be charged. Um and They've tried. all confessed, and, in effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah they have. Uh, I think we should, you know, we should, um, whatever the maximum penalty is for this stuff, if it's, you know, 60 days in the lockup and you lose your, uh, uh you know, security clearances and there's a $100,000 fine or whatever it is, I haven't even looked at what the, the, the penalties are. And I know there's this thing the Justice Department has where they say that as a matter of policy, um, although not really as a matter of law, they can't indict a sitting president you can write up the indictment and put it on the desk and let it sit there. You, know, you can put it on a post-it note and tack it up. And the day this guy leaves office, uh, charge him with it. Yeah. I think that, um, there should be some, some ex-
0: ex- guarantees Biden runs for a second. Well, that's <laughs> true, but you're yeah. going to do it anyway. I think
1: <laughs> there should be some example setting here. I think, uh, some example making, um, uh, happening, and this would be a good opportunity to do it. You, know, you were talking about the Zoe bear thing. I was thinking more of the, um, the other Judge Ginsburg, the one who didn't get to serve on the Supreme Court, because I mentioned that the other night, too. Of the, yeah. the weed yeah. thing. And I was particularly thinking of the wonderful uh John Lovett's, uh portrayal of him on Saturday Night Live where he's with the students. And they say, <laughs> but Professor Ginsburg, isn't marijuana illegal? And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> says, Please call me Professor Toke. Um, yeah, this stuff's illegal, you know, and even if it's a bad law, if you are in office, you should be following the laws. And, um, and I certainly don't want to hear anything about this from people who've never, until this day, um, ever talked about classification reform, uh, ever talked about secrecy reform, until it's, you know, bitten them on the uh, on the posterior, when these are the people who have the power to do this sort of stuff. You know, Joe Biden, as I always point out, you, know, you can't see me on a podcast, because it's, uh, it's, it's an audio medium, but I've got a very gray beard. And Joe Biden was elected to the Senate the year I was born. This guy's been in public office <laughs> forever. And, uh, you know, if he, if he really cared about this issue, if he had any thought about it, you know, he's had his opportunity to do something. He was a senator for a million years and vice president. Now he's president. And uh, I think if there are laws on the books, we have to assume that he's happy with them if he hasn't challenged them or, or done even a little bit of something to, uh, to deal with it. So, yeah, I want to I see these people uh, frog marched off to uh, whatever appropriate federal pokey uh, we put people like this in. Actually, we could put them all in the same cell. That would be great. That'd be awesome. Steel cage. And just make a prison riot out of it. And whoever survives, he gets to be the next president.
0: (laughs) Thunderdome. Um just one quick point on this um throw them all in jail thing. Um, or throw the book at them thing. I think I might talk with you about this, Kevin. I know I talked about this with Andy Smarrick um on 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 the Dispatches flagship podcast. You know, I read or I listened to this summer the Adrian Goldworthy biography of Julius Caesar. And one of the things that really came through that I guess I never really thought about seriously before was one of the main sort of bulwarks of maintaining a notion of a Republic was this constant process of trying the most prominent officials in the Roman empire with various crimes, usually crimes of like loading up their togas, with 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 Lucre when they were territorial governors. Mm-hmm. But then you come back and then like senators would be the prosecutors and they would put them all on trial and they would shave back some of their graft and sometimes, you know, bad things would happen to them. But that was how the the regime communicated to the rank and file that nobody was above the law. And I think I I think when the history on this is written, we're gonna go back and the two people who are going to get um, a big chunk of the blame in all of this, or Sandy Berger and Hillary Clinton. Um, because that was really what set up this notion that the people in charge aren't um, susceptible to the same rules about this stuff as the um, as the people who actually have to execute these rules, so. yeah, I
1: mean the Romans, unlike uh, the Soviets later, they really knew how to get the most out of a purge. <laughs> you know, they were uh, <laughs> they were real purge artists. I think maybe we should be studying that that period in history a little bit more and uh, and and learning how to do it. Yeah, the Sandy Berger thing, which I, I think probably no one under about forty five um, has has any any memory of of this guy literally walking in and you know stuffing his pants full of. Uh, Socks wasn't it? it? Was it was in dark documents in his socks?
0: He, he loaded classified documents in his socks and, uh, and in yeah. his pants, and and just walked out with them, and then nothing happened. Yeah, and the reason for it was—I mean, what what bothers me is like the crime, the actual like this goes back to old home week for for Kevin and I and our days because I, I had a lot of fun with the Sandy Berger story. I'm not gonna lie. Um, I mean, uh, the only uh, um, competing uh thing I probably have had fun with as much were um Dan Rathers memogate stuff and uh uh jeffrey and, and the tube and the missile crisis so um but anyway um uh but people forget about what Berger did there was he stole the documents so that they could better prep to cover their asses in the wake of what the nine eleven commission stuff right and Um, It was just incredibly egregious and outrageous. And like, like the whole point of like these classified document things is mens rea. And that's why I think both Hillary and Berger are such bad actors. You know, Kevin's uh, uh, seething hatred of, of Mike Pence notwithstanding, at least Mike Pence has a colorable argument that this was a screw up, an unintentional screw up. And so does Biden, right? Hillary Clinton literally created her own home brewed server to handle classified stuff and my, and do they
1: really have that argument i mean these papers they will say like you know classified at top and it's got the classification written on every page of the paper i get it i get it
0: but it, there's look look i, 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 I Again, some circumstantial evidence is quite strong as when you find a trout in the milk. <laughs> also, as when you find classified documents in your pants.
1: In your pants. <laughs> <laughs> I from the man who famously can't afford to buy a pair of pants.
0: That's exactly right. At least you got the accusation right. Okay, so we should move on. This this self-indulgent twaddle would never happen on, on Isger's watch. So originally, uh, Adam and I talked about talking about this... Um, the, the brouhaha in Florida about um, Ron DeSantis not allowing this uh, test program for an AP course in African-American studies to go through. I wrote a long uh, G file about it where I basically get his back on it. And I, I and I, I think and we're, I'm happy to talk about that, but I think it's better as just sort of a linchpin to a, a broader question that ties in the classified document stuff. And also the, the the debt ceiling and speakership stuff that we've already been talking about. It seems like it is literally impossible for the GOP to organize around and get worked up around a straightforward public policy argument anymore. It has to be turned into either a culture war thing um, or, uh, or an own the libs thing right? Some, some version of both, of both of those things. Uh, you know, uh, we, Kevin and I have very strong feelings about the gas stove thing. It didn't need to be made a culture war argument. And I would argue that the left started it and I actually have written that, but at the same time on debt ceiling, on Ukraine, on, uh, on basically everything that DeSantis does, the valence, the frequency, the messaging of it is not about the policy itself so much as, how much it will annoy the other side or how we're fighting the other side so much so that even the club for growth has declared that Mitch Daniels is <laughs> a cuck rhino weakling squish establishmentarianism establishedarian. Um, what does this say about 2024 and the future of the GOP going forward? I put it to you,
2: Declan Garvey. I think the, the, logic behind this DeSantis move and the logic behind a couple other moves that we've seen from from 2024 hopefuls in, in the past couple weeks is that the main lesson that they seem to have learned from the Trump years is that picking fights with the press in particular is an incredibly successful and uh worthwhile endeavor if you're trying to win over the hearts and minds of Republican primary voters. Um, you know, looking Talking to a lot of people who were milk toast on Mitt Romney in 2012, but loved Donald Trump in 2016, the main difference there, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of differences. We we could record a four-hour podcast on the differences between Donald Trump and Mitt Romney, but people expressed frustration that Romney and his team did not push back hard enough on the slanders in the press, the stuff about the dog on the roof and the binders full of women and that he didn't fight and kind of defend his own honor and and in turn the voters. And so DeSantis is smart about the fights that he picks in that it's stuff that he knows is catnip for a certain sector of the mainstream press. And I think this is a kind of a continued example of that, where as Jonah, you wrote in your G file this week, he might be, you know, correct on the merits, but a lot of articles and, and reporters are not going to look into the merits. Enough to kind of pick this fight. We saw something similar with, uh, and and this I don't think he's actually right on the merits per se, but he might be more correct than than people give him credit for. Is Mike Pompeo in his book about Jamal mm. Khashoggi? He wrote that the the press was too sympathetic to Khashoggi and that the United States's relationship with Saudi Arabia was not worth blowing up over this one. He called him an activist, not a journalist. That is obviously designed to provoke outrage, to get mad at Mike Pompeo, and and then he can have that debate. So I think the culture war thing, yes, I mean it's the nature of the issues in some cases. You know, like, Desantis's law and dis- instruction of gender identity, and and that's just a culture war issue. It's not a, you know, it's not a fiscal form but it's also perfectly designed to capture attention and make the correct enemies. And and he's actually I mean, looking at this AP African American studies fight, he's gotten the the college board to say they're going to revise the proposal. They're gonna revise the, the syllabus. They haven't made it public and they haven't said what the revisions are going to be, but that is theoretically a notch in DeSantis's belt. You could look at Disney backing down from some of its political activism in Florida over the past year in response to DeSantis's arguably um, unconstitutional <laughs> threats to uh, revoke certain um, privileges in response to their political activism last year. Um, Bob Iger was a huge, he was pushing then current CEO Bob Chapek to be more vocal in, uh, uh, against the quote unquote, don't say gay bill, but then when Bob Iger was installed in November, he said, uh, oh, we sh- probably shouldn't have waited into that. That was a mistake. I think that's a real win for DeSantis to show that, you know, if you punch these people back once and hard, then they might shut up about it. But he gets to have that debate where he pisses off the media and he gets to point at all these um, unfair attacks on me and I'm fighting for you. And and that connects you with primary voters. Yeah,
0: I mean, so, but Kevin, I mean, I agree. I, I agree with everything Declan says, but... Again, taking up, we don't have to go back to the debt ceiling stuff because we're in charge here. But that really just shouldn't be a culture war argument, right? That shouldn't be an on the libs kind of thing. Or maybe you think it should, but like you know, at some point, entitlement reform and 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 fiscal solvency, you're not going to be able to culture war your way to a victory on those kinds of things. And it seems to be that part of the point of being a conservative is. You know, this is always one of Bill Buckley's points that no one ever believed he was serious about. It was that conservatism is about realism, right? And not everything fits squarely into the other side is all evil, we're all good. And also just as a sort of a matter of pure sort of punditry, is that, I mean, I agree with Declan, and I agree, I agree that DeSantis is really good at this stuff, and he is benefited by the fact that the people who don't like what he is doing on the left mischaracterize it that allows him to say, see, look, they say I'm doing this. Like I found a million people saying he's trying to ban black history and erase black people in Florida, which.
2: Including the White
0: House spokesperson. It's nuts, right? And so um, he elicits overstatement from those guys, which makes his own people think they're so smart because look how dumb the other people are and all that. I get it. Does that formula work to win the White House? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it probably does. <laughs> unfortunately,
1: um, I mean, there's, I mean, so if you if you want to be responsible about this stuff, right? There's, there are issues of focus and proportionality. It's fine to criticize Disney for its various kinds of corporate activism. It's fine to criticize your local school board or your local, uh, you know, library administration for uh, how they they run their affairs. Or to criticize various aspects of uh, school curriculum. God knows that a lot of them need to be criticized. Um, but it's 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 a matter of you know how you present things and how you talk about things. I mean, if you listen to Republicans and if you listen to you know Fox News and talk radio, you would think that if you wanted to you know walk out of your house and go down the street to the store on the corner, you would need a snowplow to clear your way through the hordes of drag queens <laughs> that apparently have taken over every aspect of American life, and it's all we talk about. And of course, you know, as 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 sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti, the only drag queen who's currently prominent in American life just got elected as a Republican to the House of Representatives. So there's a, there's a bit of, you know, built in. Um, be careful about what you And make we should a, also
0: say there was a pedophile who was the speaker of the House for the
2: Republican yeah, Party. There was Not too uh, long there though. was that. So, um, you know, I mean. That was kind of the country's reaction to there was that. And let's, let's just move see, on. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on from let's there.
0: <laughs>
2: I think this stuff is politically
1: effective, yes, because of the nature of uh, you know the primaries that we've all talked about and abominated in various kinds of ways. And also just the particular kind of cultural moment where there's um a combination of I think a natural series of regularly occurring moral panics that have always been part of uh, societies like ours that are interacting in a particular way with the development of new forms of communication, social media and all that, which has been around for a while, but it's just really still working its way through the culture in terms of its effects of how people deal with one another and how they think about politics and the way in which it's made. Um, politics is already becoming sort of an ersatz religion for a lot of people, but it's the, you know, the, the, the social media thing has really made that essential to some people's lives in a way that it wasn't before and central and it's become part of people's identity. So these um, tribalistic, kinds of strategies. Um, I mean, they worked in in other periods in time too, but they worked for kind of limited purposes. You know, there was the, I mean, the the famous cliche is, you know, you, if you're a conservative you're a Republican, you're running for president, you run to the right in the primary, and the center in the general election, and Democrats did the opposite. And now that's not really the case so much because um, there's no longer a kind of, you know, shared ground to return to. Um, there's just, you know, um, there's the, no man's land is very small between the two entrenched, uh, armies in this particular culture war. So I think that, um, also there's no downside to talking about this stuff, right? So, I mean, if you want to be a responsible person and talk about, um, well, here's what we have to do to reform American public finances in the long run, that's telling a bunch of people, you don't get what you want, you know, and you're going to have to pay some taxes you don't want to pay and you're not going to get mm-hmm. some checks you're expecting to get. Whereas this other stuff is just like, well, let's all just hate these people together. It feels good. It uh, doesn't cost anything and um, and it doesn't mean that anybody doesn't get a check that they're they're counting on. so until until this particular kind of weird um, convulsion we've been going through for the last about I don't know since two thousand and eight, I guess really maybe um, kind of starts with the the Obama administration, I think. I mean, it becomes very intense around that time anyway. um until that kind of, you know exhausts itself, which I think it eventually will. It's going to be a really good political strategy. So I think that um, if I were DeSantis, yeah, I would be doing exactly what DeSantis is doing. I think he's a pretty canny politician. I don't want to try to get in his head, you know, and say what he actually believes and what he actually cares about, because you never really know about that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it kind of, it it seems like it works. But he's not the only person in the world who knows that that works. I mean, there's a reason Republicans are not winning a lot of elections right now. They're not in the strongest position as they expected to be. Um, there's a reason there are not 15 people out there who have the kind of national profile that DeSantis is developing. And, um, you know, both sides of the fence know how to play this game, I think. And I think, if anything, the recent elections have suggested the Democrats currently still play it better than Republicans do, even though Republicans maybe play it with a little more gusto. All right. So,
0: this is actually a good segue to um, something I wanted to squeeze in here um our colleague nick cotaggio wrote about it yesterday uh there are these persistent bad rash like rumors uh that marjorie taylor green is angling for the vice the vp slot um with donald trump and um i was just saying to my wife this morning like one of my favorite lines that long time remnant listeners know this one of my favorite lines from Seinfeld was when Elaine was explaining why she loved what was then Declan, a new product, stuffed crust pizza. Um, And she (laughs) says, look, it's going to be years before they find a new place to put more cheese on a pizza. Um, And, and the thing I like, the amazing thing about the concept of Marjorie Taylor Greene being Donald Trump's vice president is that you would you actually would have someone that would make you worried that Donald Trump might have a heart attack. (laughs) And that's wild. I mean, like before it was like Pence was the backstop, right? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene, like you're just like, you know, all of a sudden you're telling Trump, be careful going down those stairs. (laughs) And that's some wild stuff. But so your theory is, is that, uh, that the, Leaning into the culture war stuff um, is smart politics. Is that leaning too far? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, from what point of view, right? Um, <laughs> if your point of
1: view is to maximize your appeal among the moon bats who are going to pick the next Republican nominee for the White House, probably not. I mean, if your point of view is let's do what's good for the country and uh, and uh, try to be, you know, patriotic, sensible American adults, then of course, Yeah
0: yeah you know, just there's a third question there, because' like you were saying how i the question I asked where you went on your tear about how this is all good politics, not about Margie Taylor Green, but about culture war stuff, um was I asked, is it a good way to get to the White House, right? So like the question is not whether it would be useful for him to play footsie with Margie Taylor Green in the primaries um to sort of you know because that's what all presidential candidates do in primaries. Is or before the the they pick a VP is that they consider a lots of people, um, in part because it's a way to get contenders for the slot to raise money for you, and in part it's to sort of add your to the size of your coalition. But as another thing, do you think she would be a drag on Trump's re-election prospects prospects in a general election? No, I don't think or, she would actually.
1: Uh, um, you know, Trump was elected because he's a celebrity. Uh, he wasn't elected because he's a great policy thinker or because he's got a particularly impressive business record or anything like that. He was elected because he's a celebrity. That's how he won the nomination, and that's how he got elected. Celebrity is a very, very powerful force in American life. It's much more powerful than, you know, most sort of normal uh, dynamics in politics. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, is probably the um, most famous member of the House right now, isn't she? Up there. George Santos might be. Hey, if you ask the average American, you know, name name a Republican in the House of Representatives, um, she'd be the first one they would say probably. I mean, she's the one that Saturday Night Live is making jokes about. Um, you know, she's probably the only one that most people would recognize from a photograph. Uh, one of the few that most people would recognize from a photograph or that a lot of people would. So if you're, you know, a celebrity candidate, which is what Trump will be again if he, if he runs, um, and your issue is we hate these people, let's have a therapeutic hate session
2: together then yeah, I mean, he could
1: hardly do better than her.
2: I'm going to go out on a very far limb here and say that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a good general election candidate for the Republican Party to, to put up. <laughs> I, I think looking at the the lessons learned from the 2022 midterms, and obviously everything's hindsight's 2020, but a big enough percentage of voters showed that they are not willing to vote for a Republican no matter what no matter how kooky or or crazy they are. And that's why you don't have Governor Kerry Lake and Senator Blake Masters. Let me me put it this way. How many people out there do you think,
1: knowing what they know about Donald Trump today, um, after all the post-election stuff and everything he's been up to since then, are going to say, "Well, I'm going to vote for Trump in 2020," but oh no, I was going to vote for Trump, but not with Marjorie Taylor Greene on the ticket. I'm really concerned. I think, well, I, I suspect actually that there are probably people out there who are like, "Well, we're a little disappointed in Trump, and we're feeling like he's maybe you know lost a step, but we really like Marjorie Taylor Greene." Um, yeah, so she might actually be a, a net gain to the ticket, crazy as she
2: is. I think that's a, a reason to not nominate Donald Trump in the first place because I... Kevin's with you on that one, Declan. That group of people is 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 too small to win a general election. No, they
1: aren't. <laughs> they are not. I, 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 I love this
0: disagreement. Uh, I am more with Declan than I am with Kevin. I think the midterms kind of show make Declan's point, which is that there was, a, was an anti-Trump institution. There was an anti-Trump headwind of... Three to five points in a lot of these races. And I understand presidential elections are different, but uh, who is re- normally you get a vice president to reassure voters about something, right? That's additive. Yeah. Who is reassured or added to Trump's column by Marjorie Taylor Greene? Uh, anti-vax people. All right, right. That's that's true.
1: Start with him. I that's think. true. Um, sort of the more you know, kind of a uh, QAnon element. Uh, she sort of speaks to those people. All right, Fair. People who also suspect that, um, you know, Trump is just um, um, old and too self-obsessed to really be their, you know, tribune the way they want him to be. Uh, you know, you've heard some criticism from people who are Trump types along those lines who say, you know, he was great last time around, but, you know, he's done his thing and he's kind of been expended. Um, some of those people are, are very enthusiastic about people like Marjorie Taylor
0: Greene. Her slogan to be ready on day one to be batch <laughs> crazy.
1: <Yes. laughs> um Goodness gracious. But um, yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, if I were betting my own money on it today, I would not bet either that Trump is the nominee or that he would win a general election. I wouldn't bet my own money on it. But I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that Marjorie Taylor Greene would actually, given the character of the people who are going to turn out and vote for Trump, um, that she would be a net drag on the ticket rather than a net benefit. And with that I am applying for uh, immigration status to uh, the first country that will take me and uh, you know every time I I buy a gun you have to you have to do this questionnaire and one of the questions is have you renounced your US citizenship and I always think to myself when I fill it out not yet
2: <laughs> <laughs> most mostly jokey point but if you've read any of the DC Hill focused publications over the past two weeks, our conversation and our opinion of Marjorie Taylor Greene might be outdated by November, 2024, because she's become a very serious legislator mm-hmm. who's learned a lot through the process, you know, really cozied up to Kevin McCarthy. And now she's on Homeland Security Committee. She's going to be really um, digging into the issues by the time she's, you know, on the ticket as Trump's vice president in 2024. She might be one of our most kind of renowned legislative voices. Um, and and so in that, you know, she can surely reassure some of these people. I
0: mean, it's true. I was on a board meeting of the Rothschild Space Laser Company
2: and we were thinking
0: about like uh, making amends. So, you know, we, uh, we were talking a little
2: bit earlier about people knifing Elise Stefanik potentially being McCarthy about speaker. It could also be MTG about vice president. You know, I think Stefanik is also angling for that that role. And, you know, there's a couple other people who are as well, but it will be fun to watch and see who uh, who Trump picks.
0: Yeah, so at the end of the day, the reason why I don't think he will pick, and, and I don't think anybody here was arguing that she's the most likely choice or anything, but uh, the reason why I don't think he would pick her is because he needs a straight man, as it were, right? And he doesn't want someone who's going to... So not Santos. Uh, in the context that I'm talking about, I think Santos could actually play the straight man, but like he doesn't want anybody who steals his limelight. And it's possible for the reasons that Kevin's laying out that the crowds would go most wild for her. Um, and that is a strike against her for in Trump's eyes. Also, you know, Trump is so thin-skinned and so, has such a chip on his shoulder about being taken seriously and all that kind of stuff. I think at some level he kind of understands that she's low rent and low class. And um, if he's thinking he's got to get a woman to be his running mate, I think he would look much harder at people like Nikki Haley than he would ever look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. But... Don't
1: um, you think he would just purely pick the one he thought was most attractive?
0: I, I think he's very, very predictable in his views about the relative worth of women being reduced to their attractiveness. Um All right, so uh, other than the previous conversation, uh we normally have a question of whether something is worth your time or not. Um Sarah called an Audible and changed it from... Discussing something that was not worth our time to asking a question, Ron Burgundy, like, of uh, you know, like uh, stay classy, San Diego, um, uh, a sort of not worth your time kind of question. So the question I want to ask you guys is I need to get up to this more up to speed on it. Is this M's controversy worth my time? I ask you, Declan.
2: Depends how much you value your time. Um if it's more than five cents an hour, probably not. But, you know, <laughs> it's uh there are some people who uh who enjoy this kind of thing. So Okay, so what, what what is actually happening? It's unclear if this is kind of a a lot of companies do this kind of thing in like the lead up to the Super Bowl, um, where they mm. uh, a couple of years ago planters killed off Mr. Peanut um so that they could have him rise from the ashes in their Super Bowl commercial. In the library with a candlestick? Yes. So I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, a little bit hesitant to to say anything's official, but as of earlier this week, they M&M's Mars announced that they are putting the cartoon versions of their candy out to pasture in their advertising and they are replacing them with Maya Rudolph. <laughs> um, and she is going to be the new spokeswoman for, for the candy because over the past couple of years apparently the M&Ms have become so politicized and and so entrenched in the culture wars that um that Mars has decided it's no longer worth it to keep them as as they're they changed some of the attire that the M&M cartoons are wearing they decided to roll out an all female M&Ms package to celebrate women's empowerment um and i think other than you know, defending the 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 honor of the January sixth rioters, Tucker Carlson has spent more time on M and M's than pretty much anything else over the past two or three years. So, so there was there was just the one female M M&M, and M, right? You know, I, I I can't tell you with any degree of certainty because
1: I was thinking it was like you know it was like there was just one Smurfette, you know, and that was a real imbalanced mm-hmm. uh, kind of demographic setup in the in the Smurf Mushroom Village there.
2: And I was thinking maybe M and M's had had roughly the, the same problem. I, I I wish I, I wish I could tell you I think I think green is w- at least one of the female M and M's brown might also be female yellow and red are kind of the oafish guys who don't really know what they're doing and was it the
1: green M and M's that Van Halen used to demand taken out of their brandy sniffer or was it the brown ones or I can't remember which
0: it was, ones. I think it was green M and M's and you know there's an actually great episode of um, I think a Freakonomics podcast where they explain yeah. that story yeah um, we should tell listeners the famous like diva thing that Van Dalen would require was writers as these are known. Yeah. They have a writer that would, would demand a big bowl of green M&Ms in their um, dressing room or their green room or whatever. And everyone, it's became code for like being a diva. And their explanation for it was, it was like 25 pages into their contract and their contract was full of all sorts of pyrotechnics and like swings and trapezes that required an incredible amount of Safety and attention to detail. And this was a way to tell, test whether or not the venue actually read the full contract, yeah. which I think is kind of brilliant. If it's true, it also could be a post hoc, you know, <laughs> be just so story. But uh, so I, I like the, the most valuable piece of information I've gotten out of this is the Super Bowl cynical thinking <laughs> here, because that makes a lot of sense to me. When this story broke the other day, um, I remember saying to my wife, this makes no sense to me because I have dropped a lot of money with my daughter at the M&M store in Times Square when she was younger. And the idea that they're going to just throw away all of that branding and just sell Maya Rudolph plush toys strikes me as unlikely. Um, but I I didn't close the circle with the Super Bowl thing. So I, I, it actually, this makes it, that angle makes it more worth my time, I think, because it's that makes it sort of an interesting marketing thing.
2: And I, I can't, tell if it's, um, mocking the, the M&M announcement, but we put it in the morning dispatch the other day that, um, A&W Root Beer, their spokes bear, uh, they decided to announce that he's going to start wearing pants from now on. Um, you know, if, if something good comes out of it that we're not, you know, going to be exposed to cartoon bear genitalia anymore, um, more, more power to Mars. Maya Rudolph is charming though. So she's, she'll be a good, she is uh, indeed charming. she'll be a, she is a, charming.
1: a good spokesperson, I think. If I were, if I were um, picking uh, someone just ex-Nilo to be a candy spokesman, I think maybe Maya Rudolph would be
0: pretty high on the list. Yeah. She would indeed. I, I think that's right. Um, I also, I heard a piece on Marketplace yesterday, either Marketplace or NPR, I can't remember, uh, that this company which puts out this canned water called Liquid Death is selling, is is doing fantastically well because it's convinced all these boys to drink water instead of soda. Like, um, and they get these letters from parents saying, thank you. This is the first time I've could get my, you know, 10 year old boy to drink any water <laughs> it's because it's called liquid death. So yeah,
1: there's uh, there's some precedent for that. There was a brand of cigarettes once upon a time. They were called, I believe they were called death. And, uh, or was it coffin nails? There are there, there a few that were along those lines. Yeah. I, I, the one that's death, I remember, because I believe the menthols were called green death, which I kind of like. But, you know, their thing was they would print a uh, certain general's warning, like, the whole package size. <laughs> like, you know, as a warning. These things will kill you. They're really, really dangerous. You definitely shouldn't smoke. And uh, they were, you know, pretty, uh, pretty successful at, uh, at doing that.
0: All right. Uh, uh, Declan Garvey, um, uh, Kevin Williamson, uh, you have titles, which I couldn't possibly tell you what they are, uh, but you are part of the Dispatch family, and uh, um, everyone should subscribe to um, The Morning Dispatch, our, our sort of flagship news product, um, and to uh, Wonderland, uh, Kevin's fantastic and indispensable newsletter. And, um, and if you're not a paid subscriber to the Dispatch generally, um, seek medical attention. Um, And with that, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying to, like, see if, like, Sarah jumps in from the top rope to stop me.